0: listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Thanks so much for joining us. There are a few major foundations that work toward bettering life, well-being, and business in our region through grants and initiatives. It's broad, big idea work that aims at long-term goals with progress that often can't be measured with short-term metrics. They're well-financed organizations that help shape who we will be as a regional community. Two of those organizations are the Kresge Foundation and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Kresge's work uh, focuses on creating opportunities for people living in cities, and Kellogg focuses on creating better educational and life opportunities for children. These two organizations are currently collaborating on making Detroit a kid-friendly city by 2025. And what would that mean? What would have to happen to make the city better for all current and future kids of Detroit? I'm joined today by two people who know. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is Rip Rapson. He's the president and CEO of Kresge. And also Lejeune Montgomery Tabron. She's the president and CEO of Kellogg. Thank you both so much for being here with me. Thank you for it's having a pleasure. Us. So let's talk a little bit about this big idea, making Detroit a kid-friendly city by 2025. Um, what are sort of the key bullet points that you're focusing on that that means to be a kid-friendly city? I mean, it's got to be beyond having water fountains and play structures, right?
1: Yes. Uh, When we talk about making it a kid-friendly city, we are really focused on the the child's life course and those early years, particularly what we're doing with children age zero through five or when they're entering kindergarten. In the city of Detroit, unfortunately, many of those children uh, are not being touched in those early ages. Out of 80,000 children zero to age five, about 30,000 children have no early childhood experience. Mm -hmm. And what we believe is that uh, it puts the child on the best course if they have many developmental opportunities from birth to going into kindergarten. So with that, this entire effort is focused on how we ensure that every child, particularly those 30,000 who currently have no access, receive quality early childhood development so that by the time they enter kindergarten, they're ready for kindergarten, by the time they're at third grade, they're at grade level, and they're on a career pathway that allows them to pursue whatever dream they
0: have. So what does that mean from a tangible standpoint? Where Where's the Head Start program, the programs that allow for kids living in poverty or maybe just above the poverty line? I'm actually not sure where the cutoff comes for that, mm-hmm. but w- what needs to happen to expand beyond what Head Start right. is capable of
1: doing? So Head Start is only for four-year-olds, uh, and there is a very good program but is not reaching that entire continuum of zero to age five. So we want to supplement Head Start and continue its effectiveness. But there are many different interventions that a parent and a child can have, a daycare provider, a structure for children before Head Start even that we're right. focusing on.
0: Where does the, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going
2: to say, Laura, that in, One of the complexities of early childhood development is that just like any intervention, it's not the the sole solution. And I would actually say it's almost less being a a child-friendly environment than a child-supportive environment, Hmm. because you need to stitch together housing quality. We can't have kids growing up in homes that are uh, laced with lead. You can't have kids and uh, families where the parent can't get on transit to a job. You can't have um, uh, communities in which there are no amenities, uh, parks, libraries and other forms of support. And so one of the things I think we need to be clear about is that we believe that in that whole suite of supports that kids need in order to grow up healthy and, and prosperous, um, early childhood is a big missing piece. It's not that there aren't lots of service providers doing their best day in and day out, but we believe there are a whole set of activities that we can engage in and get started that will make those supports even more powerful, both for parents and for kids.
0: Where does the conversation start as far as financing? Or is it, is it more about, a do you have to go to legislature first? Do you raise the money privately? How does that even begin to take shape?
2: Well, I'm smiling and I'll let Lejeune (laughs) pick it up, but I am just um, uh, annoyingly uh, fixated on the idea is you never lead with the money. Determine what you're going to do first and then assemble the resources that are appropriate to the task. And I think in an early childhood, you have everything from facilities construction to facilities rehab to professional training for, for proprietors, to early screening, to connections with community-based health and other forms. And each of those implicates a different possible set of funding sources. So I think the idea that we would just sort of land on one source of funding and that it sort of crosses all of the needs we have just is not realistic. It does mean that we have to be very thoughtful about how to stitch those sources together and identify where philanthropic Mm -hmm. dollars could help, private sector dollars could help, public sector dollars could help. Then I think you go to a legislature or to a city health department and say here's where we believe your money could most helpfully move the ball.
0: So
1: and I just want to add to that yes, uh, please. I was smiling because it's funny that um, it seems like every interview we've had people want to know where's the money? Where's the money <laughs> going to come from? Sure. Where's the financing? Yes. And in some ways I think that's a false narrative. I think that's why we haven't done anything in this space is because people are always deterred by the fact that oh there's no money for this but what I have seen in places where we funded all over the country is that as Rip said when you have the right body of work and you have a compelling story as to why it's necessary the money is created and it it does happen so I talked earlier about uh, some of our work that we've done in Miami-Dade County where they've actually created what they called a children's trust and the resources were voted in by the citizenry Hmm. because once they understood what it was for they felt that that was the best money that could be spent to put a child on its appropriate life course so I think once we understand what it is we're trying to do We can redeploy resources from places now that I think are less effective for child development. Um, Some of the money that we are using for remediation of children who have not gotten a great start and who are dropping out of school and going into maybe the criminal justice system, those monies can be redeployed. And what we know is if you spend those funds earlier, you get a 17 times return on your investment than you do if you just spend those on the remedial point. So I think we should just be allowed to vision and actually create something that's so new that the old paradigms around incremental change from where we are now is just not on the table until we get to a new transformative space.
0: Well, your example with Miami-Dade is an important one, I think, because if we're talking about an emotional mandate that the city and everybody who works within the city and lives within the city should feel right how do you turn that into potentially an actual mandate that's on the books something that says this is there is legal precedent that we must be educating every kid from three years old right. on um, how do you transform that into something that must be enforced mm-hmm. uh... within the city
1: well and i think again as we have described this program um, the engagement strategy is critical so you don't go back and and make a mandate you actually engage people throughout the process so that it is their aspiration and they don't feel as if it's part of a mandate but that's why we've reached over two point five million people in Detroit for this effort and all of the you know the social media uh... spread that happens as well as one-on-one interviews because. You can't. I don't think it's sustainable if you come back at some point and you force people to do something. Right.
2: But the other thing, I think, Laura, is that um, you do, uh, if I take your question, um, you do need a set of mechanisms that are likely to endure. It it can't just all be... Within
0: the system. Exactly. It can't
2: just be all transactional. That uh, Kellogg's going to fund an early child center. Kresge's going to create a revolving Mm -hmm. loan fund for... Uh, upgrades to facilities. I think you need something in the public realm Mm -hmm. that begins to build on community engagement, holds itself accountable to the community voice but that ultimately is held by the public sector. And That's why the panel we had um, earlier today on the island was so important because Mayor Duggan was unequivocal. In his um, commitment to creating a health department that is supportive, a child uh, sort of a child-centered human services approach yeah. that focuses on many of these same issues. Now, mayors come and go, um, right. but on the other hand, creating some mechanisms, some holding machinery. I think makes it less and less likely that future mayors will unravel that and when you combine that with a different set of expectations coming from community and a different political will coming from community, it becomes a pretty powerful one to um, punch.
1: Yeah, And in the case of Miami-Dade, the citizenry actually voted on a perpetual tax that would create a perpetual fund and it passed overwhelmingly.
0: Could you see something like that happening here? Absolutely. We
1: hope. Yes.
0: So, are, is that uh, some an initiative that you're hoping to spearhead as well between <laughs> so now and 2025? What we
1: are funding as part of this effort is some research and some real diligence around coming up with funding streams. So this will not be. Um, a program that is void of the actual feasibility around how it gets funded right but that will be part of the process so those will come hand-in-hand hand, and then that work will begin
2: I think it's important to say too that we are coming to the party a little bit late by way of the rest of the nation North Carolina right. Ohio Minnesota Florida Colorado have all in one way or another peculiar to their own civic circumstance figured out how to come at this. And so I think we're going to have a lot to work with. And I think Lejeune's sense that maybe what we can do very early on is do a really rigorous financial analysis, sort of looking at what other people have done. Is there a combination of things that we could do so that you do one thing for nurse home visiting programs, another thing for facilities, construction, on and on? I think the answer is yes. It's got to come out of the the crazy complicated political environment that is Detroit but I think we can figure a series of ideas out that will make sense.
0: This is Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. We'll be right back. Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber-Davis. I'm joined by Rip Rapson and Lejeune Montgomery-Tabron. They're the heads of Kresge and Kellogg Foundations, respectively. Um, Rip, I'm glad that you brought up that mayors come and go because it also sort of Mm -hmm. um, uh, reminds me of the fact that this goal is for 2025 and we're talking about long-term strategy, long-term goals. Now, 2025 isn't that long-term. It's Mm -hmm. right around the corner, really, especially in foundation world. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But there is... To me, there is a, there, there's a there's something that strikes me about immediacy, mm-hmm. especially I'm a, a, a mother of a two-year-old. So mm-hmm. I think about how quickly kids grow up and time passes. Um, and every time we're talking about long-term strategies for little kids, I can't help but think about the kids who are little kids right now. And that must kill you guys in some ways because... When you're talking about long-term strategy which is really how you address systemic issues mm-hmm. like education and poverty and um, racial inequality there will be a lost generation if you will in the meantime does that just sort of crush you a little bit when you're thinking about it because you just want to be like we need to get this done now. So how do you balance the things that need to take a long time with the immediacy of helping children right now?
1: So you sound like one of my staff meetings. <laughs> uh, that's what I do in every staff meeting and it is attention, right? Yeah. It is, it, it breaks my heart to know that our children don't have the structures and the systems in place so that they can thrive. Uh, so we do, we look at this, we bifurcate our efforts. We have a long-term strategy, but that doesn't mean we won't support short-term progress. Uh, and we have we have grants in the city of Detroit today that's around the parent network, the, you know, um, all of the work that's around community engagement, all of our uh, workforce development. So we feel like we are funding the immediate as well as the long-term, but we know you need both.
0: Right, well how how do you push but still be amiable? With people who are making the decisions, how do you make sure you're pushing that everybody else is moving at the pace that needs to happen, but not be pushy if yeah. you will. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's
1: our work. That's yeah. you know our core value is um, we believe that people have the inherent capacity to improve their own lives and we believe that if we come in and tell you what to do you only do it as long as the money's there that we're giving you. But if we support your aspiration and your passion, you'll do it because you want to do it with our support and partnership. So there's a tension there. We, you know. But we know that long-term sustainability is built off leadership, it's built off the will of people, and at the end of the day, if we try to push too far, it's ineffective. So we have to hold that tension while we're really building something that is more sustainable.
2: Right. The, the only thing I would add uh, um, is that philanthropy is an unusual institution. Uh, we do have the luxury of trying to take a long-term view and try to sort of integrate the pieces and make sure that whatever we're, we're trying to create will endure and be effective. But on the other hand, we have this extraordinary asset of discretionary capital that can be high-risk capital. And so I think you end up doing both simultaneously. You make a bunch of bets right now, tomorrow, about what youth believe will have enduring value. At the same time, you try to think about how does that then build to the second action, and the third action, and the fourth action. When I was in Minneapolis, I worked for a mayor many, many years ago who tried to develop a whole new approach to kids and families out of the mayor's office and at that point all mayors did was fix uh, potholes and you know provide public safety and he took enormous criticism exactly for this saying are you just relegating a whole generation to substandard outcomes and he basically said You do both, but you have to double down on where you believe over the long term the next generation will benefit. And so I I just think there's no way of sidestepping the urgency, but there's also no way of sidestepping the challenges of having to build something. Building stuff takes a long time. If you had told me 10 years ago that it would have taken us 10 years to build the rail system, we probably would have never have invested. I mean, but we should have, right? Because it took us that long and here we are.
0: It seems to me like when you're looking at the breadth and scope of something like trying to be make a kid-supportive city in just a few years, one that's fully supportive of children and their futures, it's going to take an incredible amount of buy-in from um, not only people who could potentially fund what you're doing or people who need to be in place on the policy end, but also neighborhoods and people who live in the community primarily. They need to understand what you're working forward for a- as well. Conversely, I think about some people who talk in sort of, sort of large and esoteric terms about the power of foundations, especially mm. in Detroit, to shape the future of the city. And I wonder how <laughs> hard it is to overcome uh, a negative spin on philanthropic work, which seems a little bit like an oxymoron, but it is that is what it is. This idea that there are a few powerful people controlling what the city will look like in the future. How do you balance those things with trying to accomplish something so large? Not even balancing them. How do you combat that sort of narrative to also get your work done and get buy-in from a community that this is the right way to go? So I think
1: that's a false narrative. Um, I did some research recently. Individual giving across the nation is $265 billion. Philanthropic giving is 58. So when you really look at, no matter how large a foundation is, including my own, it is really a drop in the bucket for real change and sustainable change to take place. So we have to partner. There's no way a a foundation can really take control of an agenda for a community. And, and do it independently, move an, initi- an initiative. But what foundations can do, because our resources are probably more discretionary, we can take the first step. But that has to be, I think, a very informed step and a guarded step with partnership. And then we can allow others to see how the impact can unfold and then invest more wisely. Mm-hmm. But I believe our role is to, to show promise and to begin to to you know to take some risks uh, but then to shore up those risks with a lot of partnerships and a mm-hmm. lot of individual community engagement so that the long term
0: You're saying partnerships with community organizations exactly. and neighborhood Absolutely. organizations? Yes.
1: And so we, you know, we don't do the work, they do. Right. If you think about a foundation, at least my foundation, we're not on the ground, the, our grantees are on the ground. So we are investing in people and their ability and their desires and our job is to invest well, to build the capacity of people, to support their efforts and to make their, take their best risks for the change that they wanna see. And we partner in that. We don't control that agenda. They do.
2: But your question is is one I hear all the time. And as as Kresge was working on a, the Detroit Future City plan, or on the rail project, or on small right. business development, uh, we heard frequently, "Where is your legitimacy? You don't have an election certificate. Who gives you the authority to do this?" Right. And I think Lejeune's answer just is dead on. I mean. One is you always lead with community voice, community identity, and community authenticity. You just can't separate yourself and presume somehow that you're going to do something that is divorced from what neighborhood businesses, neighborhood residents, neighborhood faith-based organizations have helped contribute to. Second, I think you open up your process and welcome people in. And you say, here are a bunch of ideas that we have about early childhood, about regional transit, whatever it is. Um, what do you think? And I'll never uh, forget getting booed at a major forum on transit, where folks felt that we were sort of off base with what we were trying to do with the M1 Was it, was it the Q line? With yeah, the, with the yeah, M1? yeah, sure. yeah. And uh, and and you take that in, and you try to understand where it's coming from. And uh, out of that, we helped structured a structure and even augmented sort of community engagement process that tried to help neighborhoods understand that there were benefits to be be had. And, and I think third is that at the end of the day, you've got to um, work in partnership with the other sectors. Um, with the, I'm y- sorry? The other sectors, the uh, private uh, sector sure. and the public sector. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't pretend like we're sort of walled off from Mayor Duggan's priorities. You can't pretend that we're walled off from private sector forces that are trying to invest in commercial centers or residential complexes whatever they are and and I think that's a shift for philanthropy is to sort of get in the mix more and I think it's in its own way a form of accountability because then there's all sorts of pushback you get pushback from community you get pushback from the mayor you get pushback from a business and we've had all of that
0: Right. I I just I wonder how much of a pushback from uh, internally in a city like Detroit would come from people who feel like the city They live in a city, that, or in a society really, that has rendered them powerless. Hmm. And so they don't feel like they have a voice and are frustrated that potentially they feel like other people are getting a voice that they don't have. How do you sort of empower, well, like you said, Lejeune, the communities, uh, the organizations that you work with that are in the community are hopefully facilitating that very thing, making people feel empowered. How much of the work that you both do is about finding a way to truly empower people in the long run. It seems to me like that would sort of be the binding force between the I two would here. say
1: that's a high percentage yeah. of all the work we right. do. Yeah. Our, it's kind of a calling card yeah. of
2: Kellogg. They are really It's our known. core
1: value. I yeah. mean, we don't, we don't invest otherwise. The, that's why we have, I call it our DNA, but we approach a situation by looking at the racial equity and the circumstance, we look at where leadership is showing up, and we look at how our how our residents and the how is the community engaged. those are the first three things that we analyze before we ever get to you know determining whether there's a partnership for us to even play and so that 's Kellogg it 's mm-hmm. where is racial equity, where is community engagement, and how are we supporting leadership? And can if just, that isn't right, me. we're not involved.
2: Excuse me, I didn't mean interrupt. Um, if If I can roll the clock back a little bit, when Mayor Bing came to Kresge right after he took office and said, we've got to come to terms with land use, we have to figure out how to concentrate development and right-size the city, Uh, He said, but we can't do that, we don't have a planning department capable of it, the politics are too difficult, would you be willing to take that on? And I think at the beginning we kind of made the mistake of sort of treating this like just any other project. Create a bunch of technical experts, you bring them in, they have a couple of pro forma meetings with the community and gymnasiums full of thousand people. and we quickly learned that that wasn't gonna work. And so over the next three years, we did exactly what we're trying to do with the Hope Starts here, is we had community engagement of all kinds. We went into people's basements. We created electronic platforms. We had big gymnasium rallies. We had, all, we had mobile design sessions. And at the end of three years, we had, uh, had almost 100,000 touches with Detroit residents. And so when we unveiled the Detroit Future City plan, the two citizen leaders who had helped us structure this plan stood up and said you know it's tempting to think that this is the Kresge plan it's not it's the people's plan and that sounds sort of corny but it really was because uh, it was something that was held by the community they felt investment in it and they felt ownership in it and here we are three years later with a new administration with the Detroit Future City office and the Detroit Future City's plan still in force and I think it goes back to what Lejeune said it's because we took the time and the energy to ask the citizens to shape it now that's really hard and it's really messy and you actually can't do it on every project it's too hard
0: well and you can't make everybody happy that didn't come without some controversy and there's still people who feel frustrated by it even though it was a plan that was so thoroughly baked i i wonder looking forward toward the 2025 kids supportive city um working on something of that magnitude as well do you anticipate when you're working on this, especially when you're dealing with kids and the futures of people's children, not just them, but their children, which people often feel much more strongly about than themselves, do you anticipate pushback? And and is that something that you already just sort of anticipate as you move forward on this? Or or do you think that it's something that everybody just sort of gets on board pretty quickly and says, yeah, I want this to be a kid-supportive city. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily... It's not about... How are you concentrating city services, and where will people be living in several years? It's it's how can we get education to every child and make sure every child is supported? Is this something that maybe feels a little less controversial as you're working on it, or not necessarily?
1: Not necessarily. Um, I think we even heard today in one of this in the session. You know, where is. Wayne, where's, you know, my county? If, if I'm mm. a surrounding area outside of Detroit, am I included? Sure. So right. there's always going to be pushback, right. I think. I expect it. Um, but I think the best we can do is is really define where we're working and try to reach as many people as possible within that space. Um,
0: geographically, is that what you mean? Yeah. To define so where you're geographically? geographically, we have yeah.
1: decided that it's the city of Detroit. Right. I think we have to stick to that. There will be pushback as to why isn't it broader. Um, but what we have to say is we've chosen this geographic area. And over time, once we can show that this model does work, The scale then should happen to be and should become a lot broader than this first, you know, city. But we can't respond to all the pushback and move it to the point where it's too broad for us to be effective.
2: I think the pushback will come exactly, as Lejeune suggests, not so much in the aspiration because I think there is actually extraordinary buy-in. To that right and actually not even in the particulars of the plan i think it will be thoughtful and it will cover all dimensions of early childhood development i think it will be in the rapidity the the quickness of the response and when will i when when will it touch me you're not moving fast enough you should have put more money over here less money over here yeah. are you uh, displacing longtime providers who can't provide the quality of care that you think needs to be provided. I think it will be more how you execute on this. So, because well, I think
0: all, are all of the educational opportunities or the early childhood opportunities equal? I think right. that would be another quality concern for many the, people. Would yeah, be the a quality issue. piece of it, yes. especially in the city of Detroit. Yeah, yeah.
1: and that's part of the recommendations. Uh, so we hope to address that as part of this process right. because we know there are inequities in the city of Detroit. We know that today. Uh, So the plan has to be rigorous enough to pierce beyond that, to see where the inequities are and to build up those that are not at the level of quality so that every child has that quality experience. And that people would choose
0: to put their three-year-old in early childhood rather than say, you know what, I'm just going to keep my three-year-old at home. That's another big step, too. Well, many issues to solve. Yes, (laughs) very much. Part of the philanthropic aspect of foundation work. uh, I hope to see you both back in seven years with all three-year-olds in early childhood. That would be really cool. So. Thank you so much to Rip Rapson. He's the president and CEO of Kresge Foundation in Lejeune. Montgomery Tabron, President and CEO of Kellogg Foundation. I really thank you both for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Very and good much luck. Wow, well. thank, thank you. Thank you. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. I'll be back tomorrow and hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University.